Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds recently gave on Facebook Live. We are continuing our pre-Passover coverage. Today we look at, among other things, a modern interpretation of the four sons from the Passover Seder story. So, without any further ado, here is Rabbi Wilds. to have you guys. Okay, we're going to begin with a, um, a little story about actually the late and great Rabbi Soloveitchik. And I may have mentioned this before, but when he was a little boy, he told a story about what happened at his Seder table when he was a little boy, just about six, seven years old. He was known then as just Yosef Dov, wasn't the great Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik as we now know him. And he was sitting with his family on the Seder night in Poland, in his hometown. And they had just made the Kiddush, and in walks Rab Chaim, who is um, the great rabbinic leader in Eastern Europe at the time, was Rabbi Salvechik, Yosef Dov's grandfather. Very, very serious erudite scholar, leading Torah authority, perhaps the entire Eastern European Jewish community, a huge sage, part of a rabbinic dynasty leading back to Rab Chaim of Velozhin, the top student of the Vilna Gon. And in walks this great, great sage. Welcome, Nathaniel Berman. In walks this great sage, Rab Chaim. He's wearing a pot on his head. And little Yosef Dove looks up and he giggles. You know, a seven-year-old kid sees his grandfather, who's a very serious rabbi, coming to the Seder table with a pot on his head. And he asks him, he says, Zadie, you have a pot on your head. Why is there a pot on your head? To which Reb Chaim answered, because tonight, my dear grandson, he said, tonight is different from all the other nights. Tonight our ancestors were redeemed from Egypt. And Reb Chaim went on to engage the entire family, which included small children, which included other men and women, older men, in a dialogue, in a conversation about the Exodus, Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And the lesson from the story is a very, very simple one. Reb Chaim did something strange to connect not only with his son, his son Reb Moshe Salvechik, who was a great rabbi at the time already, but also with his six-year-old grandson, Yosef Dov, and his wife and his children and the other grandchildren at the table, because really that's the mitzvah of the Seder. And even though this year our Seders are going to be much smaller, we're not permitted to congregate in larger numbers this year. We have to just keep it to the immediate family, and there'll be a lot of people also just on their own, and we're dealing with that. We've spoken about some new ideas that we have coming out for that to help uh, people um, on their own. But the idea is that we're supposed to do something to make sure everyone gets engaged. Everybody is involved, and this is really a theme that I want to develop with you uh, this afternoon. The concept that Judaism is really about not the elite. It's not about the rabbis and teachers. It's really about each and every Jewish person. And the idea of tailoring the Seder to whoever is present is most dramatically demonstrated through the, one of my favorite parts of the Haggadah, of the Seder, and that is the four sons. You have the wise son, and you have the wicked son, and you have the simple son, and you have the son who can't even ask. Now, each one of these sons um, comes with their own question. And, you know, we kind of use... The idea that like kids have questions, but we know that as adults, we have questions too. And these four types of children who come to the Seder are not simply asking their own question. 
They're really asking all the questions that we have as adults. And this reflects the very important Jewish teaching, Chanuch L'Na'ar Al Pidarko, that when you're a parent or an educator, or really anyone trying to help someone else learn or yourself learn, that we have this idea that you're supposed to educate your child according to their disposition, according to their own abilities and according to their tendencies. The world of education has gotten a little more progressive in this sense, but Judaism has always been teaching this, that there's no one-size-all, one-size-that-fits-all. There's always the same information, whether it's the Exodus from Egypt or any other wisdom you're trying to impart, has to be shared to other people differently. And the same idea is echoed in another important uh, rabbinic uh, source, the Tanchuma, which comments on the giving of the Torah at Sinai. What does it say in the Torah about the revelation at Sinai when God assembled all the Jewish people around Har Sinai to receive the Torah? It says, Moshe Yidaber v'ha'elokim ya'nenu b'kol, that Moses spoke and God answered with a voice. Now what does that mean, Moses spoke and God answered with a voice? You know that every word in the Torah is important. Answered with a voice means it was a voice that everyone could understand. It wasn't just a voice that Moses could understand, or Moses' brother Aaron, the high priest, or the elders and the scholars. No, it was a voice that came to each and every Jew according to their own abilities, whether it was a man, woman, or child, on whatever level. And in the same vein, welcome Yudi, my friend. Yudi, we haven't spoken. I hope you're well, man. And Simcha. In the same vein, the Haggadah has four different children representing four different parent-child dialogues to teach us how Judaism recognizes different types of people different types of Jews, and they all come to the same Seder, and they're all discussing the same story. But that same story is going to mean something different for each of us. And that same story has to be shared differently with different types of people. And there's no such thing as somebody sitting at your Seder or anywhere in Judaism that doesn't get an answer that is suited to them. Everyone's question is important, and everyone's answer has to be tailored uniquely tailored to that person. That's what a good teacher does. A good teacher sizes up the student. And this is why Facebook Live is a little challenging for me, but I appreciate all the thumbs up and the comments and, and the questions you ask because, you know, I don't want to just lecture. I want to see who I'm talking to, and I want to be able to tailor what I'm saying to the audience, to the people that are hopefully listening. So everyone gets an answer in Judaism. By the way, not just the wise son. Right, And not just the simple son, because we feel bad for him, he doesn't know very much, but even the wicked son, which is really a rebellious someone who kind of is rejecting things, but still shows up and asks some questions. And yes, although the wise son is posed in a much more sophisticated way than the simple sons, they both get an answer, because they both bring something different to the table. And I've learned that over my years of teaching in Jewish outreach. That the one thing that the Jewish community is sort of missing out on so much is the unbelievable plurality of perspectives and uh, approaches that people who come to MGE classes bring to the table. Things takes on aspects of Judaism I've never heard before because you know, people are coming from very different walks of life. So the Chacham, of course, the wise son, he brings his profound and his inquisitive mind. But the Tom, the simple son, you figure, what is he going to... What is he going to add to the, to the discussion? He's just a simple son. Everything is black and white. You know what the simple son has? He has a certain purity, a certain purity of faith. One of the um, commentaries on the Haggadah teaches 
that the opposite of the Russia, of the wicked son, is really not the Chacham. It's not the wise son. It's really the Tom, the simple son, because the simple son is ready, willing, and able to serve God in his utter simplicity. I made my blessing before this. I'm just going with some coffee this morning. L'chaim, everyone. I'm happy to say that I stopped drinking in the middle of the day. I used to come to these sessions like two weeks ago and make a l'chaim with you on whiskey. And look how I've grown. I've kicked the habit. Um, I actually just published on the Times of Israel a new uh, blog that I wrote. I hope you'll read it. and We'll put it up on the website hopefully today. It's about kicking some habits um, and uh, getting rid of, rid of vaping and smoking and other things that prevent people who get corona from being able to fight it properly. Uh, I got some interesting statistics and uh, one of my students who was really pretty much addicted to vaping was able to get rid of it, at least for now, so that if he gets corona, he can really fight it. This is extremely, extremely important announcement. I wanna welcome my brother Michael who just joined. Um, but please read the post and if you have friends who vape and if you have friends who smoke, this is a really good time to get them to kick this bad habit because 20% of those hospitalized for corona, not simply 20% of those people getting corona, but 20% who are bad enough that they have to be hospitalized for corona are under the age of 44. They're between the ages of 20 and 44, okay? This was in the New York Post. This was in a couple of different uh, articles that I did some research on for this blog that I just published. And um, one of the reasons people are suggesting that when younger people are getting Corona, too many of them are ending up in the hospital is because too many of them are vaping, smoking, and doing other things that compromise the ability um, to fight this thing. So, by the way, in terms of that, I uh, have a friend, uh, actually one of my rabbis and teachers who unfortunately has Corona. He's doing okay, but he needs a refuah shlema. Um, oh, thank you. Somebody just posted the article. Look at that. We have such an efficient MGE staff. Here's the article. Benjamin Cohen, man. You're unbelievable. Thank you. Cousin Rhonda is in the house. Thanks for joining, Rhonda. We missed you yesterday. You had a good excuse, though. Rhonda was listening to the Prime Minister. Rhonda lives in Israel. She was listening to the Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu uh, in terms of quarantines and everything going on in Israel. So um, if you have friends, read the article that I, we just posted here that I wrote. It's a really important uh, piece just about um, helping friends and colleagues that might have some bad um, habits. And I, I spoke about Judaism's focus on health and developing and cultivating healthy habits and wellness. Health and wellness, how important it is to do this, makes it 1,400 times as difficult to fight the corona, according to a study that actually came out from all places, China. Um, and uh, it's in the Chinese, uh, Chinese Medical Journal. I don't read Chinese, but it was translated. Anyway, getting back to our theme. Our theme really is one of Judaism's inclusive nature. And we see this in the Haggadah, we see this at the Seder, that the different four sons all bring something different and, 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 and important to the table. And even the Russian, even the wicked, rebellious son, after denying the foundations of our faith, after basically removing himself from the community, he says, What is this thing you guys are doing? He comes to the Seder table, but he's like sort of mocking it. Everybody has someone like that at their Seder table or in their family. 
right? Someone who's just very, very cynical, doesn't really believe in Judaism very much. But he there, but he's there. He knows he's Jewish, so he feels he's got to show up at least at the Seder. I told you that the Seder is the most uh, widely celebrated Jewish ritual in America, even still. And even the Russia, the wicked, rebellious son, receives an answer because he shows up and he asks a question. And in Judaism, if you ask a question, then you deserve to get a real answer. And finally, the last uh, of the four sons, which who we haven't spoken about, She'enu Yodel Ishol. He's the child that can't even ask. Now, this is someone, now it could be talking about a little kid who can't even speak. But remember I said just a few minutes ago that these are really, these are really examples of individuals, of adults, right? Because you're going to have a mocking son at the table. You're going to have the, you know, the real smarty pants at the table. I haven't used that expression in a long time, smarty pants. Uh, you're going to have the uh, simple son, very black and white. He accepts everything, but doesn't really analyze things too deeply. And then you're going to have the Shane of Daily Show. You're going to have the one person who's so checked out at the table. They, they're just so removed from Judaism that they don't even know what to ask. Right? You have to have a certain basic level of, of knowledge to be able to ask a question. And what does the Haggadah say? The Haggadah says that when it comes to such a son, at petachlo. You have to open, you have to engage that, that person. You can't just let that kid or that adult sit at the table just with a blank stare on their face. You have to say, hey, you know, we got this Exodus thing. Figure out something in that person's life that is similar to the Exodus so they can somehow relate to and you can use that as a springboard for conversation. The parent must open the conversation. You must begin the dialogue because this child or this adult doesn't even know enough to question. But the Haggadah teaches not only the value of providing answers, but it also teaches a methodology to respond to the different types of Jewish personalities. Someone's asking a question here. I love when you guys ask questions. Jonathan Brody, are there some modern-day commentaries on the son or daughter that is so unconnected they don't even show up? <laughs> that was like a lob. You know, like if you were a pitcher, John Brody, and I was at bat, that would allow me to just... Smack it out of the out of the ballpark. Yes, the late and great Lubavitch Rebbe. The Lubavitch Rebbe, um, I'll show you a picture. I have him in my dining room. Um, I got to actually meet the Lubavitch Rebbe. I know, I was a little younger then. Okay, that was me when I was about 23, 24 years old, and that was late Lubavitch Rebbe. I got to meet him. And Lubavitch Rebbe had this idea called the fifth son. And it was a little of a sad kind of commentary because, and this already, I don't know when he said this, but this is a long time ago. Babich Rebbe hasn't been around for 25 years or so. And um, he said that, um, that the Chacham, the four sons, were like really a paradigm of what was happening in the American Jewish community when the Rebbe was alive. Because the Chacham was like the, the grandpa, the Zaidi from Europe, who was a very erudite, scholarly, and learned Jew. But, you know, um, he came to the United States and his son started to kind of rebel a little. He didn't give much of a Jewish education to his son because he wanted him to, you know, acclimate towards um, American culture. And then he st the, the son started sort of rebelling. And then the next son of the next generation, because he didn't give him a Jewish education either, and he grew up with a father who was kind of cynical, <coughs> he became like a Tom. He didn't really know much about Judaism, he was very, very simple-minded. His understanding of Judaism was very, very base. And then, Sheodena Lishol 
The one who can't even ask was the next generation. And then he talked about the fifth son. Who's the fifth son? The fifth son doesn't even show up. The fifth generation, which the Lubavitcher Rebbe was saying was already around in his time, 25 years ago, 50 years ago. I don't know how long ago he said this exactly. The fifth son is a son that's not even there. And that refers to all the Jews that unfortunately have assimilated into uh, American culture and are not showing up. I know it's a very depressing Tvar Torah, but I will tell you, and this is something which is encouraging, do you know how many Jews actually left Egypt? What percentage of the Jewish community was redeemed from ancient slavery? And I don't know how many of you know this. Anybody know what percentage? Did, was it that all Jews left or just some Jews? I'll give you a minute to think about it. Rhonda did the eye, eyebrow. What was it? It was only a small percentage. Only 20% of the of Jewish Egyptians, if you will, or Egyptian Jews, I wonder what they called themselves back then, actually left Egypt. Because the Torah says, V'chamushim alumim Mitzrayim, and they left Egypt, chamushim. Now the word chamushim um, means, could mean prepared, uh, and Rashi brings down two interpretations. It can mean prepared for battle. They were going to go into the wilderness. They'd have to fight warring tribes in the wilderness. So they took implements of war with them so they could fight if they had to. Rhonda's suggesting 1%. No, it wasn't that bad, Rhonda. <laughs> 20%, because it says v'chamushim from the word chamesh, which means five, one-fifth. Only 20% of the Egyptian Jewish community actually left Egypt. The other four-fifths were wiped out during the plague of darkness. They simply were not were, were they simply were not with the game. And I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but that twenty percent is almost a constant number throughout Jewish history, and it's the same thing in the United States of America, where we lose about four fifths of our people simply through intermarriage and assimilation. We have about twenty percent left, and it was no different back then, and it was no different throughout Jewish history. Now, you can get really, really depressed about that, or you can do one of two things. You can make a very large contribution to the Manhattan Jewish experience. Do it right here. Do it right now. <laughs> I sound like one of these info commercials. That is trying to engage as many Jews as possible to keep as many Jews in the fold. That is our mission. That is our mandate. And thank God we've been doing it. And I think even doing it more now with all the social media, everybody's glued to their phones and whatever. Nothing else to do. Or you can just say that, like, we were never about the numbers. We were never about the numbers. Judaism is about quality over quantity. But obviously, we want to pull as many Jews back on a lifeboat as possible. But that's a very, very important idea. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke about this years ago. The fifth Jew, and Rabbi Riskin, my teacher, has this in his Haggadah. It's my favorite Haggadah, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin's Haggadah. It's amazing. And in there, he talks about the fifth Jew that's, that's not at the Seder table. You've got the four the wise and the simple and the, and the one who can't even ask. And then you have the fifth one who's not even there, but we should think about that and talk about that at our Seder tables and say, what are we doing to bring our Jewish brothers and sisters back to Judaism? What are we doing to make sure that the fifth son shows up at the Seder? This is a very, very important question, and you know that's what MGE basically is um, devoted to doing, trying to bring back the fifth Jew. I once said this, I, I, I read this in... Uh, you got a lot of extra time on your hands. One of the best Jewish books ever written. I've been recommending it for over 20 years. It's called This Is My God by Herman Wilk. Herman Wilk, by the way, uh, just passed away recently. 
he was 102 years old, lived in Washington. He was a great author and playwright. And he wrote a book called This Is My God about his return to Judaism. And, he's, and, and when he talks to me, he says, where is this Jew? Where is this fifth Jew? He says, nothing terribly eventful. He might be at his um, golf club, you know, uh, getting in a couple of rounds before he goes off to the office. And everything is fine. And he'll have the golf clubs piled up in the back of the car. And his name was uh, Abramson, but he changed it to Adams. And he'll be fine. But the Jewish question in America at, at some point might be over. And I know that there are people watching this from Israel. You know, what we're trying to do here is obviously try to engage as many of our Jewish brothers and sisters in pos as possible and bring them closer to Yiddishkeit. But the vast majority of Jews today who do come to the Seder, we have to give them a huge pat on the back and, and, and we have to be excited that they're there. And they're probably not coming with a wise son's question, perhaps with a simple son's question. And for some of our brothers and sisters who are so removed that they, they don't even know enough to ask, again, not their fault, it's just a question of our exposure and our education. And therefore, we have to take the initiative. We have to open up the conversation. We have to reach out and begin the dialogue. Um, and if we don't, by the way, and the next year that son won't be there, they'll just be like, there's nothing here for me. We have to demonstrate the authenticity and the relevance of Judaism. We have to demonstrate that there's something truthful about this path of life, and we have to demonstrate that Judaism has what to say about making us happy by providing a life of purpose and meaning. But we must learn also how to speak to all Jews for even a more fundamental and personal reason. And that is so one day we can answer the questions posed by our own children. And I love this interpretation. There are some who view the four sons as not representing four different types of Jews, but really one Jew at different stages of his or her life. How do we all start out as children? We begin as a child, as a she'enu yodei We begin life without the ability to, to speak. We can't even ask questions. You just, these cute little babies, you bring a child, an infant to the Seder, baby just sits there. Right? That's the way we start out in life. But then the child grows a bit. And now the child can start asking questions. But he or she is simple-minded. Their perspective on the world is black and white. They are a Tom. I remember when my kids were little, it was such a sweet time. Every time we'd watch any show, one of my kids would always ask, Daddy, Abba. Is he good? Is he bad? Everyone's either good, everyone's either bad. Really? Yeah. I want to thank Jill. Look at this. Pancakes. Look at this. For lunch. Pancakes for lunch. Whoa. Is that unbelievable? Um, pancakes with Aunt Jemima syrup. Unbelievable. I think we're going to make a Mizzou notes on this. Welcome, Rebecca. I appreciate you joining me for my pancake lunch. Baruch Adunai Elohim Melech Mm. That was amazing. Now, you'll notice I'm putting a little syrup on my pancake. I do this for a very deep reason. It's just so much better. But you'll notice I only made a mizono, and I made sure to make the mizono blessing over the pancake after I put my syrup on it. Because once my syrup is on my pancake, then the Mizona is a blessing you make over a grain. Excuse me. 
um, the syrup alone would be a shahako blessing, but if it gets combined with the mazona, the mazona trumps the syrup. It's just a condiment, right? But it's uh, extremely important that it be a mixture, and that way you just make one blessing over what is more chashuv, what's considered more important. That was just unbelievable. All right, I can't eat the rest because then you'll just be watching me eat, and then you'll stop tuning in. And then tomorrow you'll be like, I don't need to see the rabbi eating lunch every day. Okay. Um, but anyway, let's go back to this uh, idea. This is such a really beautiful idea that we um, look at the four sons, not as four different people, but as one person going to through four different stages of their life. Thank you for all the smiley faces. It's amazing what pancake, pancakes can do. So we all start out as a Shayna show. We begin life without even the knowledge to speak. Then we get a little older. Our questions start, but they start very simply. Is he good? Is he bad? But as the child continues to develop, what's the next stage? Can't ask. Asks, but asks simply. And then the wicked son. Adolescence. Anyone here have uh, children <laughs> in adolescence? Or if you remember, not too long ago, we go through this period of rejection, if you will, of rebellion. In a sense, the child passes through a Russia stage where he begins to question or even reject the way that he was raised. Now, thank you so, so much, Renard. Um, thank you. So, now we all, of course, hope and pray that the kid gets through this adolescent period where everything gets called into question, everything gets uh, rejected and, and rebelled against, and eventually de develops into a chacham to one who's sincerely interested in inquisitive wisdom and knowledge, spends the rest of his life learning and studying. And I want to just finish this part of our discussion. We're not done yet. We have more time. Um, and I want to speak about like the, the, the amazing story. Because a chacham, a wise person in Judaism, isn't someone just simply with a lot of information, someone who has a lot of wisdom. It's really someone who's always inquisitive always wants to know more. And this is such a great, important Jewish quality. The quality of wanting to know more. The beautiful story of Rav Eisel Kharif of Slonim. Um, that was his name, C-H-A-R-I-F. And he was a great rabbinic scholar. And like a lot of great rabbinic scholars in Eastern Europe, he was looking to marry off his daughter, but wanted to find a good Talmudic student for his daughter to marry. He wanted someone, you know, learned and knowledgeable in the ways of Torah. So he traveled to the greatest yeshiva. This is a true story. He traveled to the greatest yeshiva of his time. Jill, do you remember the story? Oh, she's listening to another rabbi. I have so much competition here. I can't get my own wife to listen to my lecture. Do you, hear, you want to hear this great story just real quick? So he travels to this, the greatest yeshiva of, of, of the time, of, to the world-famous yeshiva of Velazhin. This is Rav Eisel uh, Kharif of Slonim. And he goes to Velazhin because Velazhin is like the Harvard of all yeshivas. And he wants, to, he wants to find the best and the brightest Talmudic student for his daughter, to marry off his daughter. And upon his arrival, he is informed, uh, he, he tells the head of the yeshiva that he will present a very complicated and detailed question on Torah, to all the students. And whoever could give a suitable answer would be given his daughter's hand in marriage. Um, it's a crazy kind of way to get married, but if you think about the way we date on the Upper West Side or in Manhattan, it's, it's a lot easier, man. 
I mean, if you know the answer to the question. So Rav Eisel poses the question. The whole yeshiva, all the students are there waiting, you know, to hear the question. And everybody wants the daughter of this great rabbi's hand in marriage. And Rav Eisel poses a question, quickly makes its way around the yeshiva. And it was a very hard question. And no one really could figure out the right answer. So he stipulates that he would give all the yeshiva students one day to come up with the right answer. 24 hours. And the day comes and goes, no one has an answer. No one comes forward, so Rav Eisel gets on his coach and his horse and buggy, and, and he proceeds back home. And suddenly, the coach driver for this great rabbi hears a voice of one of the students who's yelling behind him, and he's running as fast as he can run, wait, wait, stop! And looking behind him, Rav Eisel sees one of the students from the yeshiva who's desperately trying to catch up to the coach. So he tells the driver to slow down. Excuse me, the driver starts slowing down, feels bad for the kid, but Revisal's like, just keep going. It's too late. I gave him 24 hours. Too late. And the coach driver starts pleading with the rabbi. He's like, come on, look at him. He, he, he may have an answer. Just extend the deadline a little longer. Have pity. Look at him. He's running with all of his strength. So Revisal relents, and the driver stops the horses. And as soon as the young man catches up, the rabbi says, listen, I appreciate... I appreciate this, but it's too late. The day has already passed, and the young man looks up, and he says, I know. I don't have the answer to the question, but I really just want to know. I want to know what the answer is. You came with this question. None of us knew the answer, and then you left. What's the answer to the question? And the rabbi was so impressed not with students' ability to answer the question. He didn't know the answer. But he was impressed with the student's inquisitiveness, with his desire to know the answer to the Torah question that he posed. And he brought him all to meet his daughter. You knew that where this was going. And they got married. And that young man became the legendary and famous Rav Yasselov Slonim, who to this day we refer to as the great Slonim Rebbe. I've been reading his writings for years. The Four Sons at the Seder teaches us how much Judaism values our questions. But Judaism also demands that we search for answers in life. And we work hard to search for those answers. How far are we willing to go? You know, a lot of us are sometimes turned off by things that we see or heard about Judaism. But how much are we really inquiring? How far are we willing to go? How, how fast are we willing to run to learn more? about our Judaism, and that's really the opportunity we have now during this corona period leading up to Passover, because Passover is really a holiday that requires us to learn more and to observe more. I said yesterday, it's one of those only holidays that we, we say, Chag Kasher V'Sameach. We don't just say happy holiday, we say it should be happy and kosher holiday, because there are a lot of things to learn about. Judaism inspires us not to be content with where we are, not to be satisfied with the level of knowledge that we've already attained, but to keep running after more wisdom and more knowledge. Because we all know that when you stop learning, we stop growing. And then Judaism becomes stale, and Torah ceases to be the dynamic and exciting approach to life that we know it to be. And that's why the Haggadah records how the greatest sages of the Talmud stayed up all night discussing the story of the Exodus. Rabbi Eleazar, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Akiva. I assure you that they knew more about the Exodus from Egypt than any of us do. 
but they stayed up into the wee hours of the night. It's so weird that like the people who are more learned and more knowledgeable end up spending more time on things. You'd figure they have to spend less. They know more. No, because that's what it means to be a Torah scholar. A Torah scholar is not simply someone who knows more, but it's someone who has the passion for more wisdom and for more knowledge. And that's my blessing to all of us that we try to find that passion and that excitement for more wisdom and for more knowledge. Okay, any questions or comments? I have one other thing that I want to share with you today. Any more? I'm going to take a little um, pancake break. Shana, welcome Shana, who's on, Rebecca. Um, anyone else that joined in? Andy Pfeffer once again. Uh, oh, you want me to show you the picture of the Rebbe? <laughs> Andy? Cool picture, huh? I don't know. I got to meet him. It was really a big zechus. Uh, I'll tell you very quickly, This um, we went at the time when my mother, of blessed memory, was very sick. We wanted to get a blessing from the Rebbe. And uh, we spoke together in German. He spoke many languages. And he had these beautiful, piercing blue eyes and a very, very sweet, sweet demeanor. Um, and as I get older, um, I become more and more enthralled with his teachings and his writings. And he was just an extraordinary, extraordinary leader. Um, so talking about extraordinary leaders, I want to share one last idea with you today um, that I think also can be really helpful for us. One of the things I think many of us are challenged by when we're home all day, sometimes we don't feel as productive. I know. You look at the end of the day, what did I do today? What did I get done? Sometimes days are better than others. And I think there's a, a very powerful message we can learn from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses, our teacher. Because Moshe, when God commands him to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of the Jewish people, does anybody remember what Moshe's reaction was? Right? God um, sees Moshe or appears to Moshe really at the burning bush. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt. Now remember, Moshe was a fugitive. He killed an Egyptian. And he ran away. And he was away for a long time. Started a family. was in Midian. And then one of the sheep got lost. And then he sees this burning bush. And God tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt. You need to redeem my people. They're enslaved. And what does Moshe say? Moshe's like, you, you got the right guy? You found the right person for the job? What was Moshe's reaction? Who am I that I will go before Pharaoh? And then God gets into this whole talk and discussion with Moses. And Moshe just keeps giving one excuse after the next. I'm not a man of words. Moshe had some kind of speech impediment, we know. Um, heavy tongue, slow of speech, excuse me. And God just keeps answering every excuse Moshe gives. Oh, you have a speech problem? I'll be with your mouth, he says. Just go, just go, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. Moshe turns back to God. Send someone else. I'm not the right guy for the job. By the way, this is the longest dialogue in the Torah. Back and forth, back and forth. It goes on for verses after verses. It takes up almost two chapters in the book of Exodus. And the question is, why was Moshe so reticent about accepting his role as leader? I mean, God knows everyone. 
Moses obviously believed in God and in God's ability to make the right choice. So why would Moshe keep doubting God's choice and argue with God so much? And by the way, just to strengthen the question, every minute that Moses is arguing with God in the wilderness is another minute he could be saving the Jewish people. Okay, so I know what you're all thinking. I'm going to give you your answer. Well, unless you want to try. Why does Moshe argue with Hashem so much? If God thinks Moshe's the right guy for the job, and, and why would Moshe keep delaying things while his brethren are being beaten in the fields of Egypt? It's a good question, no? This is a dramatic pause to give any of you watching the ability to make a suggestion or to come up with some kind of answer. I'm looking if there are any other comments here before. Sorry about my finger on the screen here. Why would Moshe keep arguing with Hashem? I'll give you a little more time. So, um, some of the commentators explained that Moshe simply could not believe that God would send as his messenger, someone that was so less than perfect for the job. Welcome, Faith. Moshe implored God. Moshe said, send someone who's perfect. Send someone who has all the qualifications. Send someone who doesn't have a speech impediment. Why would you choose someone with a speech impediment to demand the release of the Jewish people? You need somebody articulate. You need somebody representing the Jewish people in a, in a more of a perfected way. Send someone else because I'm just too far from being perfect. And what is God's response? I just, I want you. I know all the issues that you have. We'll work around them. I'll help you. You can take your brother Aaron with you, right? I know about your speech problem. We can deal with it. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm interested in you. And God was imparting to Moshe and really to all of us the vital, important Jewish teaching that not everything in life has to be perfect in order for it to be good. Moshe had a lot of very important qualifications. Moshe had compassion. We know that. Moshe had dedication. He had a lot of the qualities to be God's messenger. And by the way, this is very, very important. You always want to choose someone. Ah, oh, my friend Lee is here. Welcome, Lee. You also had a lot of humility because you always want a leader who doesn't exactly want the job. You want someone who has the qualities and the talents to get the job done, but not somebody who feels they're the perfect person for the job, and that was Moses. Our society celebrates perfection, particularly when it comes to external things, like the way we look and the way we sound. So Moshe, right away, when, he, when Hashem said to him, please, go to Pharaoh, go tell him to demand the release of the Jewish people. So Moshe, like any of us, would say, wait, wait, you got to get somebody who knows how to speak properly. I'm not that person. But there's a danger here. There's a danger in not being able to be able to see the special blessings that exist in our lives when we focus on being perfect all the time. That everything needs to come out so perfectly. And this is something I personally struggle with. Those of us that come from perhaps very driven kind of homes where a premium is placed on um, perfection and externalities, the way you look, the way you sound. We often imagine that we're not good enough to get certain things done. And what Judaism teaches is that you don't need perfection often to get a lot of things done. And if you wait for perfection and you demand perfection, then you're going to trade in perfection 
for good. And good might just be good enough. You know, in Brakat HaMazon, in the Grace After Meals, we have four brachot. And I love this teaching. It's one of the most, like, I think, powerful teachings of Judaism. And we're going to learn a little quickly now. Brakat HaMazon, in the Grace After Meals. Um, we have four... I'm going to get, like, an MGE bencher. Hang on. Don't go anywhere. So interesting being able to teach from your living room because you have like certain things lying around that you would never have, you know, like a bencher, um, because this is where we eat. So Brakata Mazon is the grace after meals that we recite when you eat a full meal with bread. And even though the Mazon feels really, really long, it only consists actually of four blessings. And I always tell people when you get to the end of the fourth, the other stuff is meritorious to say, but it's only a custom, it's a minhag. So you can just keep to the four if you feel it's too much. Um, but there are four brachot. The first one, Baruch Hashem Elokim Olam Kulo Bituvo. Right, God who um, sustains uh, people with with food, and that blessing, the first of Berakat Mazon, and it ends with Baruch Hashem Hazan God who sustains everyone. That bracha was instituted by none other than Moses. Later on, when they were in the wilderness and the man fell from the heavens, Moses was inspired to compose this blessing, uh, expressing gratitude for the man that fell from the heavens, which sustained the Jews. That was blessing number one. The second bracha, which starts with, No, delacha Hashem elokeinu, al shin which is a blessing that was actually composed, we believe, authored by none other than Joshua. Joshua, who took over the reins of leadership after Moses. On the land and on the food, it ends. It goes from all the way to death, page 62 here, if you happen to have a bencher, and it runs all the way through 66. You are blessed, O Hashem, for the land and for the food, because Joshua was the one that brought the Jewish people into the land of Israel. So it's really a blessing over the land of Israel. The third bracha then continues with Rachem. Rachem Hashem Elokeinu Yisrael Amecha, God have mercy on Israel, your people. And this blessing was instituted by Solomon and David, who we know um, built the first temple. And that's why it ends with Baruch Hashem Yerushalayim Amen. The last and fourth blessing is the most interesting. It's the shortest one. It begins Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melachalam. Blessed are you, God, King of the world who is our Father, our King, our Mighty One, our Creator, our Redeemer, right? Hakel ha'avinu malkinu adirenu borenu go'aleinu, and it ends with the words le'olam al yechasreinu, and that's technically when Rekat HaMazon is completed. Now the first three blessings are all biblically mandated. The first one by, let's review, Moses, the second one by Joshua, the third by David and Solomon. The fourth bracha is one instituted by the sages, the Chachme Yavne. And at a very weird time in Jewish history, the Chachme Yavne, the sages of the city of Yavne, after the terrible Roman massacre of the city of Betar. Betar, for those of you who uh, might be familiar with the it was a, a, a youth Zionist movement um, called Betar, um, that um, some great Zionist uh, thinkers, um, Jabotinsky, um, was, was, were leaders of, um, but Betar was actually a place 
and it was the last stronghold um, attempted defeat against the Roman oppressive regime. Um, this is after the destruction already of the Second Temple. Jews were fighting for decades against the Romans, even after the Second Temple was destroyed. And the Romans defeated the Jewish army and killed hundreds of thousands of Jews. Um, of, uh, uh, and, and a lot of the Jewish bodies, unfortunately, were laid out. And, and um, it was a terrible, terrible massacre. And the, 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 the Jewish corpses were just literally lying on the hot fields of Betar. And the Romans would not allow the Jews to come in and bury their dead. It was an awful period in Jewish history. And years later, after much praying and fasting and bribing the Roman despots, permission was finally granted to bury those who were killed. And by some sheer miracle, when the Jews went out to the fields of Betar to, to gather in the bodies to, to, to bury them, and they knew it couldn't be a proper Jewish burial because the bodies would have been decomposed, it was a crazy miracle that the bodies did not decompose. They were preserved as though they had just been killed. And that allowed the Jews to actually bury their dead properly, which is an important thing. And over that incident, the Chachme Yavne, the sages of Yavne, instituted this beautiful blessing. Hatov v'hametiv, God is good and who does good. This is such a strange incident. Who in their right mind would make a blessing after the slain of Betar? You make a bracha because after this terrible massacre, you can bury people the way that a Jew is supposed to be buried. The body was left intact for seven years. Those bodies, those corpses laid out in the hot fields of Betar and they didn't decompose. But because they didn't decompose, they could give a little, they, could, they had this one little piece of chesed, one little kindness from Hashem. They made a bracha. Think about how powerful that lesson is. Something as catastrophic as the destruction of the Second Temple and the putting down of the Bar Kokhva revolt, which was our last attempt at throwing off the oppressive yoke of the Roman, um, the Roman power. We were unsuccessful against the Romans, but because we were able to bury our dead properly, there was that one little shimmer of, that one little glimmer of hope. We had that little chesed that Hashem gave us. Our sages gave us this bracha that we say every single time. We say, Berkat Mazan, Hatov, God is good, and he does good. How can one of the most exultant blessings, by the way, that bracha is made if you, let's say on Shabbat, you make Kiddush over wine, and somebody brings a better bottle of wine to the table, there's an additional blessing that you make, when there's something extra, a little chesed you weren't expecting, you make the bracha, how can one of the most exalted blessings that there is be instituted after something so tragic? Because our sages taught us that even a partial good, even a little shtickle good in the midst of terrible is worthy of celebration. Even something which is bitter deserves a word of praise if there's also something good to it. Judaism teaches that something doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to warrant a blessing. Just like God selected Moses, together with all of his imperfections, his speech impediment, and all the other issues that he claimed he had, and maybe they were all true. God looked at an imperfect world and he found a reason, not God, our sages. Our sages looked at an imperfect situation, a highly imperfect situation, destruction of the second temple, and they found a reason to say a bracha. Because even the imperfect can be good. 
And the question is, can we do this in our lives? And this is something I wanted to share with you now as we're struggling through this period of isolation, of quarantine, of social distancing, of watching people contract um, a terrible virus. Can we recognize the blessings that we still have in our lives? How many truly good things are still happening that we have a reason to make a bracha that we don't fully appreciate because it could have been better? How many good relationships, I always wonder, because they weren't great, because they weren't perfect, did we let go in our lives? You know, I'm speaking to you live here from the Upper West Side, the Mecca of Jewish singlehood, and I often wonder how many of those good relationships that I've seen over the years could have been actually decent marriages, but never made it to that point because the interaction was just good. It wasn't like spectacular. There wasn't like sparks all over the place. And, and it applies after marriage too. How much do we take those of us who are blessed to have our significant others, you know, our spouses, how often do we take them for granted because the relationship is good, but it's not great. And I think this is such an important and powerful lesson. The Talmud tells us that a father should endeavor to marry his daughter off to a Torah scholar. That's the ideal. But you know what the Talmud continues? It doesn't just stay at that. It says, and if it's not possible for whatever reason, then try to marry your daughter off to someone who's known for his good deeds in the community. And if that's not possible, I'm reading from the Talmud, then to someone who helps run the local synagogue. If that's not possible, to the Gabbai Tzedakah, the Gemara says, to someone who collects and distributes charity in the community. And if that's not possible, then to the one who teaches Torah to the children in the community. The Talmud recognizes that ideally we might be looking for something very, very specific, and we might have wrapped our hopes and our dreams in some kind of perfection to find exactly what we're looking for. But it's okay, and it's not settling, to look for something else. It's important to find happiness with the good and not only wrap it up with the perfect. It's a great story, by the way, and I've shared this. And I apologize if some of you have heard this before. It's just such a sweet story. I heard this from one of my friends. It didn't happen to him, but it happened to a friend of his. There was a woman who had her heart set on marrying an accountant. <laughs> I don't know how many women um, you know, dream about marrying an accountant. Such an attractive profession for her husband one day. I mean, she wanted a professional who wouldn't have to work like crazy. So I guess accountants had the reputation of earning a decent living, but not having it to kill themselves in some crazy law firm until midnight every night or, um, you know, or a doctor being out all the time. So her, she had her heart and she would only go out with accountants. She had this like crazy thing. She told the shatchan only accountants, the matchmaker. So the matchmaker, you know, had this great idea of a guy for the young woman. The only problem is he was an accountant. And not only was he not an accountant, he was a rabbinical student. Ooh, that's the worst. Right? But, you know, she just had this feeling like the two would really click. So she told the woman, and I'm not saying that I approve of this. The matchmaker told the woman, I'm going to fix you up with someone. I really think it's a great idea. The woman right away, is, is he an accountant? Yeah, yeah, he's an accountant. <laughs> she lied. Now, I'm not saying that I approve of that. Okay? I'm just telling you the story. No judgments here. So they go out on a date, and it's great something is like a really good idea and they go on another date and another date and like they're just so into each other and finally like it doesn't even occur like they're just talking about so many other things she's like by the way what is it that you do and she finds out that the guy is an accountant 
and she dumps him. No, I'm just kidding. She, it, it didn't matter at that point. It didn't matter because we hold on to certain kinds of pictures of what everything needs to look like. You know what's unbelievable? There are a number of weddings that have had to either be canceled or they, they, they just continued on. And uh, I was talking to one uh, such woman who, ever since she was a little girl, wanted a certain kind of wedding, you know? And she said something to me very powerful. She says, like, as I'm getting a little older and hopefully wiser, I'm beginning to realize, what does it really mean to be married? I, I, I put so much, I invested so much in the, in the, in the nights of the party, in that five-hour event that we're going to spend so much time, energy, and focus. Somebody, somebody just told me, um, my friend, oh, um, Lee is listening to this. So I, I spoke to Danny, Lee's husband, a very dear friend, Danny Waxman, who comes every single Wednesday night to MGE to learn Bichavruta. And Lee is a member of our board and is super involved. And Danny said to me that he drove by, in the five towns, a wedding that took place on someone's front lawn. They just literally set up a chuppah. They had less than a minion. They, they practiced social distancing. They didn't want to push off the wedding. And that's what a lot of rabbis are suggesting to their students because we have a certain ideal in our mind. The wedding has to be this. The wedding has to be that. But the wedding is really just a way of celebrating the marriage and consecrating the marriage, which you can do with just a few people. Ideally, you should have a minion for the Sheva Brachot. Um, but um, it, it can still be done during this crazy period of time. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson in life is not to get too married, if you will, to perfection. Because, and, and I didn't make this term up, but I have it in my book. It's actually, my book has 10 chapters, uh, but the 11 that you can get on Amazon, it's still, Amazon's still selling stuff. It's like 15 bucks, really worthwhile read, I think. And at the end, I, I wrote that, that, um, that uh, there are 10 chapters in the book, and these chapters are really here to help provide meaning and, and purpose to our lives. But if we can't do the whole thing perfectly, that doesn't mean we don't try it at all. The ethics of our fathers, Avot, Lo Alecha Hamlacha Ligmar, our sages taught, uh, you don't, no one said you had to finish everything. Lo Alecha Hamlacha Ligmar, it's not for us to finish. But we're also not free, we're not exempt from completely excusing ourselves. And that's what we do sometimes. If I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. What a mistake. And I, I speak to, this is really weird because when I'm teaching now, I have to look at myself. I'm literally looking at myself as I'm saying this because this is one of my great challenges. For some reason, I've got that like perfection, 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 and it can drive you crazy. And it can prevent you from putting yourself out there and doing good things because you're so obsessed with doing them perfectly. So then you end up not doing them or you beat yourself up because it could have been a little better. And here's the kunst, as I get older and hopefully a little wiser, it could always be better. Now, you don't want to put out schlock. You want to put your best foot forward, but you don't want to go so crazy that you become so obsessed with perfection that you never either put it out or you beat yourself up so much that it prevents you from doing more and more. This is another issue that I have. If anybody wants to go on, I did a TED Talk. I mean, it's actually an Eli Talk. It's like a Jewish version for TED Talk unfailing and it's it's a problem that a lot of millennials have also today they haven't been taught to fail because failing is a part of growing and if we're not willing to just do something that's not exactly the way it's supposed to be 
is going to keep us from really becoming the best version of ourselves. Um, so let's learn to value a good relationship even when it is imperfect, to accept the nature of, of our existence as imperfect, and, and this is very, very important for Corona, to learn to, to make a bracha, to celebrate things in life when they're good, even when they're not great. I think that is a really important lesson to think about now and to go about our day, and I want to wish everyone a good day, a healthy day, uh, do a little exercise, eat healthily, make sure to call someone that is a little worse off, feeling a little lonely and insecure about everything that's going on. I wanted to devote the Torah that we learned today to the Rafur Shlema, um, um, to Yehuda ben Farrell, uh, who needs a Rafur Shlema, and there's so many others, of course, as well. Keep staying strong and keep trucking. Keep moving forward in life, even when it, you don't think it's going to come out perfect. People will still appreciate the good. And we have to learn how to appreciate the good <clears throat> and learn how to make a bracha. Hatov v'hametiv. God is good and he does good. Life is beautiful and we need to learn to appreciate even the imperfect parts of it as well. Thank you for listening and being asked to make a little announcement. Commercial for, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I'm back. A little commercial for Rabbi Avi Heller's class, which is tonight uh, at 8 o'clock. Was that correct? Uh, I think that's at 8 o'clock. Oh, wait. Bingo Happy Hour Social. Okay, we're doing a happy hour uh, at 645 and then Rabbi Avi Heller will be teaching a Passover class at 7.45. Check out more details. Uh, okay, we just posted that as well. Uh, tomorrow night I'm going to be teaching some Zoom classes. If you would like to join in, I'll be doing some more insights into the Seder uh, and some other ways of preparing ourselves for the holiday. Um, and uh, please join us also on Friday night. Kabbalat Shabbat at 6.15. And then I'll give you the time for Havdalah after Shabbat uh, as well. And just keep staying with us. I really love the beautiful crowd that we have. Enjoy your lunch. Have a blessed and beautiful and healthy day. Uh, stay safe, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.